from Walt Disney's original Magic Kingdom and the happiest place on Earth, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host and producer Craig Williams. So Craig, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. And Dizzers wearing their extra alert mouse ears heard a different introduction to our show this week. This is one of those very special episodes of Connecting with Walt. Not only are Craig and I recording this episode in the same room, we are in the kingdom where the magic began, Disneyland. And if that's not special enough, this week we rode in our Coach and Four out to the Walt Disney Studios to connect with Walt and see his office where the magic was conceived and designed yeah oh it was an absolutely wonderful this morning uh getting to be able to see the studios every time i'm there i just absolutely uh, adore every little bit of it and and getting such a special tour from d23 just it really set it set the bar high for any future studio tours <laughs> that I ever go on. This one was extremely special. And, uh, you know, I, I think it also should go without saying that uh, we're lucky enough to be recording this together right now at the Disneyland Hotel. So I don't know if there's going to be uh, some of the background noise and audio that's playing throughout the hallways that's picking up in here. But uh, regardless, uh, this is pretty much the best place we could be asking to record this right now absolutely um yeah we're in you know walt's magic kingdom in in the hotel after heading out to uh to his studio and yeah every time i go to the studio i learn something new i have a deeper appreciation for it but to actually be in walt's office i mean that was just a remarkable experience it was completely unreal. So I yeah. missed it on my uh, December Backstage Magic tour because it wasn't quite finished yet, but uh, it was worth the wait because mm-hmm. this was just fantastic. Yeah, and what was exciting is we were the very first D23 tour yeah. to go into the offices. So uh, we spent quite a bit of time in there. Not sure if um, future tours will spend quite as much time as we did. Uh, I have a feeling they won't. No, no. Yeah, it was an extraordinarily long tour. Yeah. So we were very fortunate to have that. Oh, yeah. So so we'll be talking about our tour in a few moments. But we wanted to just share a little bit of the history of Walt's studio with you. Um, Phil Santora once wrote in the New York Daily News, Contrary to popular belief prevalent amongst his younger fans, Walt Disney wasn't born in a never-never land of enchanted dwarfs, lugubrious dragons, soft-eyed deer, impudent ducks, frisky chipmunks, and dancing mushrooms. Neither did a good fairy wave her hand and summon him into his mor- this mortal world in a blaze of light. As most of our dizzers know, 
Walt Disney was actually born in Chicago, but Walt always said the place that had the biggest impact on him as a boy and the man he would become was Marceline, Missouri. On early episodes of Connecting with Walt and the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition, um, I've talked about Walt's early years before Mickey Mouse. But whenever Walt looked back over his life and his many achievements, he would often insist, I hope we never lose sight of one fact, that this was all started by a mouse. Walt closely identified with Mickey Mouse. For Walt, the childlike exuberance of Mickey matched his own. Mickey would also be a permanent reminder to Walt of humble origins of his company and how remarkable the accomplishments of the organization he built was founded on the exploits of an unlikely hero, Mickey Mouse. Another favorite story of Walt's was of a little princess who runs away from her wicked stepmother and seeks refuge with seven little men in a woodland cottage. It is an old and beloved story that through hundreds of retellings became a part of the United States and United Kingdom's traditional bedtime stories for children. And as a newsboy in Kansas City, Walt had been given a special screening of an hour-long silent movie version of the film in 1916. This film had a lasting impression on Walt that would one day change the course of his life. After the success of the Walt Disney Studio with its short animated films, Walt was considering the story of Snow White as a silly symphony short. And after the release of the 1933 Max Fleischer Snow White short starring Betty Boop, Walt decided Snow White would be the subject of what he was now calling his feature symphony. Walt believed Snow White had the perfect plot, containing humor, romance and pathos and if the story was good it would make a good picture we all know walt disney was correct when snow white and the seven dwarfs was released on december 21st 1937 at the carthay circle theater in los angeles it was an immediate success this film was proof of the genius of walt disney and his artists in a radio interview, filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille asked Walt to explain the secret of Snow White's appeal. And Walt said, Over at our place, we're sure of just one thing. Everybody in the world was once a child. We grow up, our personalities change, but within every one of us, something remains of our childhood. It knows nothing of sophistication and distinction. It's where all of us are simple and naive, without prejudice and bias. We're friendly and trusting. So in planning a new picture, we don't think of grown-ups and we don't think of children, but just of that fine, clean, unspoiled spot down deep in every one of us that the world has maybe made us forget and maybe our pictures can help recall. It was on this foundation that the house of Walt, the house that Walt built, rose. In an interview only a few days after Snow White premiered, Walt announced his plan for three new animated features, Pinocchio, Bambi, and Alice in Wonderland. What Walt didn't reveal was that three additional potential features were being researched, Cinderella, Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, and J.M. Barrie's Peter Pan. 
With Bambi and Pinocchio in early production, it was soon obvious to Walt and Roy that they had outgrown the Walt Disney Studio on Hyperion Avenue and decided to build a studio designed for the particular needs of animation. A site on Buena Vista Street in Burbank was found for the price of $100,000. And on August 31, 1938, a deposit of $10,000 was paid by Walt and Roy, and the designing and construction of the new Burbank studio began. The money for the new studio was provided by Snow White, which, in its first six months of release, had grossed $2 million. And by the time it had concluded its first run, the film had grossed $8,500,000. The Walt Disney Studio staff began moving from the Hyperion Studio to the Burbank Studio in December 1939, and the move was fully complete in May 1940. Walt Disney's goal with the new studio was to produce a self-sufficient state-of-the-art production factory that provided all the essential facilities for the entire production process. As a result, Walt was personally involved with all stages of designing the studio. From the layout of the buildings to the design of the animators' chairs, nothing was left to chance. Walt was adamant that he didn't want the institutional look that was common in other studios, especially for the main animation building. Frank Crowhurst was in charge of construction in 1940, supervising the architects and engineers. The primary designer was German architect and industrial designer Kem Weber, and Weber oversaw every detail of the new Burbank studio from the exterior architecture to the buildings to the streamlined modern design of the furniture, desks, and appliances to the custom typeface used on the studio's signage. To enhance the campus-like setting, all of the utilities were placed underground, which was an innovation for 1940. The 250-foot-long animation building was built to house the story department, directors, producers, background artists, layout artists, in-betweeners, and associated personnel. Walt hoped that having all these people together in the same building would help them to better collaborate with each other. Roy Disney's office, accounting, and the business department had their own first-floor wing. The animators, cleanup artists, and in-betweeners were also on the first floor. The directors had suites on the second floor, including a secretary and a separate room with a moviola, which is a device the film editors use to film while editing. The layout men, background artists, and the music room were also on the second floor. The third floor held Walt's suite of offices, the story department, and the music composers. The ink and paint building was built directly across from the animation building and were connected with an underground all-weather tunnel to protect artwork from being damaged by wind, rain, or extreme heat as it was transported between departments. Yeah, and this is absolutely one of the highlights that you get to see on 
pretty much any tour. I, mm-hmm. I'm sure every now and then you might be on one and they can't take you down there for some reason. But uh, the underground tunnel that connects Ink and Paint as well as animation is is just brilliant. And you shared a couple, well, one story in particular mm-hmm. about your time there and the tunnels. Yeah, well, yeah. before Dave Smith came along... Um, Those tunnels were a mess. I mean, they had just boxes with drawings and cells just stacked up and stuffed in there. They had file cabinets. I mean, there was no rhyme or reason to it. So when we were uh, in between filming and we weren't in the classroom or or something like that, and we were left to roam about the studio, um, we found that tunnel. And so we would we would play hide and seek around the studio, and the tunnel was one of the places we liked to go down into, and um, we were found out pretty quickly by by the animators and folks who still were working in there, and we were we were very um, kindly asked to leave and and not return. <laughs> and that's such a shame because uh, during the tour we were uh, told that the animators would actually ride film cells up and down well not up but down uh some of the the chutes inside the underground tunnel and And that's what i heard yeah but i think the coolest story that we are told about the tunnel is that uh you know there was so many little hidden closets nooks crannies that anything could just be placed into and actually in a I believe they said in a trash can or a like trash dumpster down there, uh, a janitor found what was the snow globe from Mary Poppins just sitting in one of them. And, you know, it, it, it's just amazing that walking through there, you don't know what all is still in there. It still hasn't been completely tapped into. Yeah, I think our tour guide said that a few years ago they were going through an old desk and they found um, the opening credit artwork for mary poppins yeah yeah so so they still don't know quite what's down there and yeah there was there apparently was no rhyme or reason yes you know to what was down there no and uh if you've ever watched alias before too uh keep an open eye if you ever see a weird uh russian style underground tunnel then chances are this was the one because apparently jennifer garner was filming scenes down there for whenever alias was on tv Mm mm-hmm I've never seen that show, but I guess I should watch it for the yeah, tunnel. Me too. <laughs> um, now there are several sound stages on on the studio. Stage one was built in 1940. And it was built for the live-action sequences for Fantasia. They were the first scenes to be shot on that stage. Uh, That stage is now known as the Annette Funicello stage, um, mainly because of of a little television show that was filmed there called The Mickey Mouse Club, Mm -hmm. a a little show close to my heart. And uh, there were a few other... other um, I know um, shows filmed there as well. I know one was um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, was also one of the um, shows that were filmed there. So um, I'm trying to, I'm sort of thumbing through my notes to see uh, if there was anything else filmed there that I jotted down in here. But um, I think those were the biggest ones from what I can remember. Yeah. Oh, and then there was a, there's a television show called um, Code Black that's currently being filmed in there right now. So 
Anyway, now stage two was built in 1949, and that was in cooperation with um, Jack Webb, who used the stage to film his Dragnet television series. And stage two is one of the largest sound stages in Los Angeles at approximately 31,000 square feet. And this was dedicated not too long ago as the Julie Andrews stage, because another little film was um, filmed there. Yes, The Princess Diaries. Yes, that's right. And even before that... Another sweet little film called Mary Poppins. Uh, yeah, that one too. Yeah, and there were actually quite a few. Also, the um, Pirates of the Caribbean, um, Curse of the Black Pearl was filmed there too. They said the Black Pearl was actually yes. set up on that stage and filmed. They talked about Pretty Women was um, filmed there. Um, Code Black is also on that stage. Mm-hmm. And um, also, um, the Mark Twain was built there. As, as uh, and uh, and what we'll talk about too is a few other of the Disneyland um, attractions Attract. were built on the sound stages at um, the studios. Now, stage three is an interesting stage because it was built in 1953 for 20,000 leagues under the sea, and it still contains a large tank for underwater. And um, special effects filming. So, of course, that's where the squid attacked the Nautilus in that very famous scene. Yeah, and we actually got to go inside yes. uh, Soundstage 3, which, first off, any time I've ever been to the Walt Disney Studios, which is only technically two times before this one, uh, every soundstage has been completely mm-hmm. closed off, and uh, you can't get anywhere near it. But today we actually... The door was cracked open, and at first everyone was just kind of looking in, and then they let us go in. And my goodness, this was a huge stage. Um, I've only been on one other one. Uh, No, actually, I've been on two or three, but this was by far the most impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Most recently, that soundstage is used by Marvel. Um, they filmed Guardians of the Galaxy yes, on did. that stage. And, of course, Craig, one of your most fam- favorite films, Muppets Most Wanted. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, it really is. And oh, is it? Yeah. No, I, I, I actually love it. I'm starting to like it more than the uh, 2011 Muppets, mm-hmm. which I, I love the movie. But uh, Muppets Most Wanted is growing more and more on me. Okay, I have to see it. I've not seen oh, that one. you got to watch it. Also, that is where company meetings for animation is mm-hmm. held. Um, that's where John Lasseter will hold his meetings, or Ed Catmull for Pixar will also hold their company meetings there as well. Um, stage 4 was built in 1958, and it was first used for filming one of my favorite live-action films, Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And in 1988, it was divided into two um, television stages, creating stages four and five. Stage four, uh, most famously, Home Improvement, uh, was filmed there. And stage um, five was Ellen. Yeah. So, and I was disappointed we didn't get to see stage four because Home Improvement is one of my favorite uh, sitcoms. Uh, just I grew up with it. Mm-hmm. So. It holds a special place in my heart. And whenever we were in the archives, one of the coolest parts was they actually had props from Home Improvement in the archives on display. Oh, wow. So, like, tied it all together. Yeah, well, they had some of the little 
maquettes or dolls used for one of the dream sequences yep. Yep. on the show in there. Uh, other classics that were filmed on the sound stages include Davy Crockett, Pollyanna, The Love Bug, Blackbeard's Ghost, Pete's Dragon, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, um, Armageddon, um, some MTV shows, um, Madonna, Brothers and Sisters, National Treasure 2, which I liked, and the first three Pirates of the Caribbean films. And also, as I mentioned, in the early years of Disneyland, these sound stages doubled as construction buildings for many Disneyland attractions, such as the Main Street vehicles, parts of the Mark Twain, and even the monorail cars. Some other buildings that we saw, uh, we saw the main theater, well, the outside. Um, It's a state-of-the-art digital sound dubbing and screening facility. It was first used to mix the sound for Fantasia. And sound mixers blend dialogue, music, and sound effects tracks to the various levels appropriate for a movie theater. Um, The acoustics are designed to simulate a theater that is three-quarters full. And although the theater is empty during the mixing session, extra padding in the seats and specially designed walls absorb and reflect the sound. So that this helps the sound mixers to know what the final track for the film will sound like when it is released to the public. Now, Stage A, built next to the theater, was originally used for scoring, and for many years, the music for many Disney films and cartoons was recorded here. Um, In 1985, the stage was converted to a dubbing stage in theater. So like main states... Like the main theater, Stage A is now an all-digital, state-of-the-art dubbing facility. Mm -hmm. And didn't they talk about that they... uh, I think, what, Frozen was dubbed there, and I think... um, Oh, um, what's the latest? The latest one that they constantly talked about the animation one is Zootopia. Zootopia. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, there. They were definitely pushing there. Zootopia oh, my extremely goodness. hard. Were they? Yes. They don't need help. You know, whenever a movie does eight hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. it's it's doing just fine on its own. Yeah. Now, stages B and C were designed to provide sound elements for the animated films. Um, Because of the studio's location near the Burbank Airport, special priority was given to soundproofing um, the building within a building designed for noise reduction. They didn't have the modern, uh, you know, the the modern methods and technology for soundproofing in those days. So they literally built a building within a building to provide the provide the noise reduction. Um, Stage B is also known as the dialogue stage, and that's where the characters' voices were recorded for many animated classics, including Alice in Wonderland, Lady and the Tramp, Peter Pan, and The Jungle Book. Um, Stage B was also used for such recent films as Aladdin, The Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, Today, that tradition continues not only on Disney films, but also with Pixar hits, such as Toy Story, Bugs Life, Toy Story 2, and Monsters, Inc., And Stage B accommodates automatic um, dialogue replacement, or ADR, a process that allows the actor to re-record their dialogue. Um, One such use is for scenes shot on location um, when an actor's lines were destroyed by outside sound or noise, such as a plane flying over at the time of filming. Again, they mentioned that Frozen and Zootopia were also... um, recorded and dubbed here yeah not a lot of big hero six names drops (laughs) during that one (laughs) no but i love that film me too 
Stage C was originally used for the recording of various sound effects for the animated features and short subjects. Uh, many of the unique sound effect props and gadgets for these processes were invented by Disney um, technicians. I think they called this the Foley stage, yep. didn't they? Yep. Um, today's stage C serves as a dubbing stage for film and television, and it was recently renovated in 2001. And like the other stages, it features an all-digital state-of-the-art film console. And the backlot shops, we, we headed over to the backlot. A lot of the shops aren't there anymore. Um, but they, these were built to provide the many crafts and services required by live action productions. Um, the machine shop, which is no longer in use, housed machines and equipment that produced innovative camera and projection objects for the film industry. Um, during the construction of Disneyland in the mid-50s, the shop's engineers designed and hand-built many of the automobiles, train parts, boats, trams, and carts that were required by the new park. Um, I know Hollywood Record um, was the last occupant um, of this building. Nearby are the electric plumbing and buildings containing machines and equipment for repairing and maintaining the many systems within the studio complex. In the same area was the staff shop where they made molds, plaster casts, and fiberglass figures, many of which are in use at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Um, a lot of this is now outsourced. Yeah, exactly. Um, next to the electric and plumbing was a special effects shop where craftspeople created the myriad of unique effects that have come to be associated with Disney films. Um, flying cars, spaceships, miniature paddle wheelers, and medieval armor that comes to life are just some of the effects that were produced by this department. Um, the paint shop, which is on another large metal building, does everything from spraying cars and furniture um, to be used on the movie set to spraying the set itself. Um, other prominent shops throughout the back lot included the sign graphics, craft service, and the mill. But they were saying that now a lot of these are just brought in on trucks yes, yes. rather than having permanent buildings. Which makes sense. Yeah. Smart. Yeah, now... What I remember, for more than 30 years, the back lot featured exterior sets for, um, that were used for outdoor live-action filming. There was a Western Street, um, Zorro Pueblo, um, Residential Street, and the Town Square. There was even a, a, a lagoon area where um, they would film... Um, they the, they would they would film you know outdoor um, action that took place on an island wow and and, uh, and things like that I mean it was really cool it had a little waterfall and and everything back there it was way off in the corner hmm. um, now most of the buildings on the Western Street were constructed in 1958 for El Fago Baca which I'm sure that's not how you say it, and Texas John Slaughter television shows. Um, over the years, the structures were modified for filming Darby O'Gill and the Little People, The Love Bug, Those Callaways, and The Apple Dumpling Gang. These were all films I grew up with. The last major feature films to utilize the street extensively were Hot Lead and Cold Feet and The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. <laughs> Sets representing a downtown area were constructed in 1965 for the Ugly Dash Hund and Follow Me Boys. And they were changed extensively for various films and then completely demolished in 1981 to make way for a new town set for Something Wicked This Way Comes. 
There were four original buildings on the residential street originally constructed in 1960 for the absent-minded professor, including the main house and garage used for the laboratory, and other houses were used for the Swamp Fox and the original That Darn Cat. Um, A well-known set was constructed for the Zorro television series in the 1950s. This was once the Pueblo de Los Angeles with a fort, a jail, a square, an inn, and a church. Later, one of the old Spanish squares was redesigned to become a French village. Hills, pools, berms, and caves were built nearby for other productions. Um... The iconic studio water tower once held 150,000 gallons of water. Our guide talked about that, that it was used for air conditioning, mostly, which was innovative at the time. It was the only studio that had air conditioning. Now, most studio water towers, like the one at the nearby Warner Brothers studio, have four support legs, but Roy O. Disney insisted on six for this 135-foot-tall structure. And it was to ensure its stability. Yes. And now we learned that there is no water right there anymore. There is zero water in there. They now have better systems. Exactly. So now when Michael Eisner became CEO, significant changes to the studio were made. One of the first changes was demolishing the back lot. So with the increased use of on-location shooting, the backlot sets were replaced by the property building, the Zorro parking structure, and the Frank Wells office building, and stages six and seven. Yeah, and for anyone else wondering, well, what do they do now whenever they need those backlot scenes? How do they film them? Well, it just so happens that Warner Brothers, which is essentially right next door, and then Universal Studios, which is... What less than two, three miles away from there, maybe five. Uh, they still have really great, thriving backlot scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know, at least for Pirates of the Caribbean, God, it's come up way too much time in this episode, Pirates. But uh, they filmed a lot of their scenes of like Tortuga um, running around uh, the Universal backlot. Mm-hmm. And so, and they also have a city scenes there if they ever have to fill in and do anything with Marvel. Um, so, yeah, it, it didn't really make sense for them to keep it because. As you said, on location shooting, as well as the fact that you have some neighbors that have really good backlots. So, yeah. might as well take advantage and add uh, more stages in the other buildings yeah. that they did. They also used some of the recording facilities at those studios. Yeah. And um, th- they also used um, some of the filming of Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the, the water scenes. Mm-hmm. They used what was left of the old marine land. Oh, really? And they, they filmed some of the offshore things there. And also, they have the Golden Oaks Ranch, which is the last studio ranch. And they have gone out and they have actually built, they do have a residential street out there. Oh, okay. And a western street that they will sometimes use for filming. Very nice. So Now... Um, let's see. Now, as chronicled in the must-see documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty, and our tour guide even brought this up, um, the feature animation staff was relocated in 1985 to warehouses and trailers in the Glendale area. And the animation building was soon converted into business offices in 1986. And for anyone watching this, uh, like, watching? Wow. Listening to this right now. Um <laughs> 
if you haven't seen Waking Sleeping Beauty before, definitely go out there and, and track it down. Try to find it. Uh, if you're listening to this in either April, May, June-ish, um, on June 28th, they're actually going to be showing Waking Sleeping Beauty as part of the next installment of Treasures from the Disney Vault on TCM. So if you want to wait a little bit, you'll be able to and uh, watch it yeah. live on TCM. It's worthwhile. It's also interesting to see the internal oh, yeah. strife that started to happen towards the end of Michael Eisner's years. Yeah. It becomes very evident in Waking Sleeping Beauty oh, yeah. and what was the beginning of his end. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And um, Oh, and, and we're talking 2016, in case yes. you're listening to this, um, you know, in, in, in 2030 or something. Oh, I should have <laughs> kept this foolproof. <laughs> So, um, after a string of blockbuster animated features, beginning with The Little Mermaid through The Lion King, the animation staff returned to the studio property in 1995 and took up residence in a new building on Riverside Drive across the street from the studio. And this eye-catching entrance is designed to look like Mickey Mouse's hat in the Sorcerer's Apprentice segment of Fantasia and is dedicated to Roy E. Disney, who saved Disney animation from being closed down by Michael Eisner. And it took another film, the success of Frozen, to um, to uh, pay for uh, an extensive renovation that the animation building is currently underway. Yes, and some of the most exciting news, uh, which hopefully for all those people listening right now in 2030 would be able to experience now, but... Uh, Potentially, the animation building might be added onto studio tours mm-hmm. in the future, which yeah. I, you know, that's bucket list. Yes. That's like uh-huh. Walt's offices, which we are coming up to very, very quickly here. Uh, it's just something that I want to see, I want to be in. Mm-hmm. I would love to see that. Now, the Roy O. Disney building, um, which was once home to the Disney archives, was recently renovated and currently holds the offices for Disney Legal. Now, Michael Eisner had a fascination with themed postmodern architecture. Um, He hired architect Michael Graves to create an imposing and controversial Team Disney building at the Walt Disney Studio in 1990. Um, Michael Graves, who created the Swan and Dolphin Hotels at Walt Disney World, was one of the many architects who, in the 1970s, rejected the clean lines and simple structures of the prevailing modernist movement in architecture. Graves became one of the leaders associated with the postmodern movement, which brought absurdity, decoration, and whimsy to architecture. Is that how you would describe the Swan and Dolphin? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> not clean and uh, at all. It's, you know, a, a triangle. Is that a simple structure? <laughs> Now, Graves is most often remembered for the Team Disney building. Um, Based on classical architecture, the building features the Seven Dwarfs as its structural columns, um, again, representing that they were... uh, were, they, they, they supported the Disney studio yes. through because of the success of the film. Eisner, who knew the building was a gamble, watched its construction progress from his office window. The fact is, we're the only company who can get away with it, Eisner told Patricia Lee Brown in a 1990 New York Times profile. 
Roy E. Disney, the nephew of Walt Disney, who had served as both vice chairman of the board of directors and head of animation, was disgusted by Graves' building. In the prologue of Disney War, which definitely read if you can get it, author James B. Stewart writes... Though the monumental facade was leavened by bas-reliefs of the seven dwarfs in the pediment, Roy felt the building represented everything that was bloated and pretentious in the company that Eisner had created. How do you feel about the building? Oh, I think it's ghastly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's cute, yeah. but it's ghastly and doesn't at all fit in with the studio. Oh, I absolutely agree. I love taking pictures of it, mm-hmm. so I can't really argue that fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it just doesn't fit yeah. in. In my researching for this, one of the things they said about Michael Graves is whenever in architectural classes, whenever they want to show examples of bad architecture the team disney building is always included that's great yeah that's funny <laughs> so on january 23rd 2006 the building was rededicated as team disney the michael d eisner building the frank g wells building opened on july 1998 and along with other departments now houses the disney archives and we had a really great treat when we visited the archives. Oh, absolutely. Archi- this and was Of course Dave Smith was there. I know. That was uh that was really special. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I know you mentioned that he might actually uh, be in there mm-hmm. and talk to us for a little bit, but uh it, it it was even better than that than just him coming by and saying hi. I mean he pulled s- some really fantastic pieces besides what's already featured in some of the the cabinets and display cases inside. Yeah, I mean, because some of the things they had, they had an artist's desk set up um, from the 1940s when the studio opened. They had the airline chair Mm -hmm. designed by Kim Weber. Um, Yeah, they had a lot of um, early Disney merchandise from Disneyland and the Mickey Mouse Club, a lot of um, personal effects of Walt and Roy, film props, uh, models and maquettes for films, a lot of different artwork. Um, But he uh, he brought out some of the stuff staples that I've seen him bring out before, like the um, Disneyland press pass um, from the opening day on July 17th, 1955. And also the parking pass, which I know I think was a recent acquisition that he was trying to get because and they were so hard to get because they are um, a sticker. Yes. That had to be peeled off car windows. Yeah, exactly. And he uh, brought out Disneyland ticket number one. Mm -hmm. Which Roy Disney bought. Yes. Yes. And what was it? A dollar or something? Yeah, I believe they said one dollar. Yeah. yeah. Um, they also had the first um, guidebook in there, um, and that was the one that had real photographs. He also had the first tour book, but that was created before um, the park opened, so it only had artists' concepts drawings. Yeah. And that was only a quarter. And um, the Walt was criticized for that because it costs more than a quarter to produce. But Walt said, this is a book people are going to have on their coffee tables. It is going, it is going to be the greatest marketing tool we have because people are going to have it in their homes. Their guests are going to be looking at it. And they're going to um, want to go to Disneyland as a result. And you know so, what? That's still true to this day with every is. souvenir book that they always put out. Mm-hmm. 
They also had um, cell and background from the Goddess of Spring, mm-hmm. just silly symphony, sort of a precursor, a test for the drawing of Snow White and the Seven Dwarf. Something very special from Mary Blair. Oh yeah, uh, some of her uh, her pastel drawings that she did for Saludos Amigos, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. we were not allowed to touch because we didn't want us to smear them. Exactly. And he also had the um, an Oscar for um, White Wilderness. Yep. So and was, no, uh, what was your favorite thing that we got to see in there? I think. Uh, well, one of the things that was funny is on one of the archivist's desks was a lamp that we have two of those lamps in our front room. Oh, that's <laughs> So that, that was funny. really neat. It was a Tiffany-style lamp yeah. that had um, Mickey Mouse, um, you know, in the lampshade. And also, but I think for me, it was the Mary Blair yeah. um, pastels. Oh, that's, that's really special. <laughs> Anytime that's I can get up close to real Mary Blair art. Oh, is just you know. I amazing. completely agree. For some reason, my favorite is still the home improvement maquettes. I think oh, yeah. <laughs> those are cute. Yeah, I also one of my favorite things that they had the merchandise display case the last time that I was in there too, and uh, I am absolutely obsessed with Ingersoll Mickey Mouse watches, mm-hmm. and there is a Donald Duck um, Ingersoll pocket watch that I saw for the first time the last time there and again i was tempted to break open that display case and pull that out. <laughs> you know, i would love it they are remaking some of those you'll have to see because i know like right. i've seen them on sale at like the walt disney oh, family I, museum i have one kylie actually okay. gave me the one of the ingersoll sorry ingersoll ingersoll uh mickey mouse pocket watches is our is my wedding present i so, and i yeah. like that pocket yeah. watch i thought when i add to my dapper days costume i want that pocket watch it's it's beautiful works like a charm but as we mentioned a little earlier one of the highlights for me and craig during our tour of the walt disney studios was entering the original animation building and walking through those historic halls to suite 3h which was walt disney's suite of offices and as we said we were the very first d23 tour to enter those offices So Walt Disney used this third floor office from 1940 when the animation building opened until his passing in 1966. And it was closed up for several years before archivist Dave Smith inventoried it down to the paper clips. Then the office was used by Walt's successors at the helm of the studio until the early 1990s. And the suite was then occupied by producers, including most recently Desperate Housewives creator Mark Cherry. After Cherry moved out, um, Disney chairman and chief executive Robert Iger gave his approval to return the office to the way it was in the late 1960s. And using old photos as a guide, Disney archivists faithfully restored the office as part of the studio's 75th anniversary in Burbank, using original items cataloged by Smith or accurate reproductions of items lost to time or too sensitive to display. So the five-room office suite includes a secretary's office with a cabinet holding Disney's many awards, um, such as a reproduction of the special Oscar he won for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, with a normal-sized statuette and seven smaller ones, as well as Walt's working office, his formal office, and a private area where he relaxed after a long day's work. So first we should probably talk about just when we went up there. Yeah. And so sort of as we um, approached the office, 
when you go, went down the corridor, it was lined with posters of films from Walt's time, yeah. live action as well as animated, including some that you know people probably haven't seen in years. And um, so anyway, so so that was really cool. And so the first area we went into was the secretary and rece- reception area. <laughs> yeah, this was a real quiet area when we started recording. We don't have any idea what's going on up here right now. I, I know. There's... It's this become a suddenly a very busy, loud area with nobody noticing we're recording a show here. Oh, well, <laughs> it happens. I don't know. It's, and they I, just look at us and smile. I know. As they make all their noise. Yeah, if anyone's wondering, <laughs> uh, a good place that is pretty quiet uh, and you want your kids to run around and create havoc definitely go up by the uh, the ballrooms in the convention center at right. uh, which, the disneyland hotel which are completely <laughs> empty and if anyone's recording a show just completely ignore them <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway yeah where were oh well the the hallway first yeah the posters just lining it this was absolutely fantastic i wish they would have let us actually stop and check out every single one of them but mm-hmm. i mean that would have turned into a a five or six hour tour if they would have let us do that but uh, it definitely did set the scene for uh, coming up to the the corridor with where his secretary's office was going to mm-hmm. be right and the thing that struck me about the secretary's office was how small that desk yeah. was okay. I mean, that was a really tiny little desk and uh, you know they said part of uh the the entire restoration was that it isn't a hundred percent accurate uh, because now there's there's walkways through there so mm-hmm. groups can go through and uh, through and actually see everything that uh, that that was restored and put in there so you know there's chairs out of place that right. are that are on display in other areas and it's not a hundred percent accurate but at the same time everything felt really really small to me uh, i was surprised by how small all the offices were and and now the now the ceiling is a little lower because they had to put in modern fire suppression yeah. um technology in there so they're not quite as high as they were in walt's time yeah i i bet it for me, I think it's seen something like uh, Saving Mr. Banks, mm-hmm. which obviously was talked about quite a bit on this tour because some of the reproductions that were made were made in order to produce that movie. Uh, but it just – that movie made his offices seem large, large and inviting yeah. and – I wouldn't say it wasn't uninviting, but it definitely wasn't as big as they made it, it, it feel in the movie. Cramped. Yeah, even though even when you imagined it with all the furniture, where it should be like in Walt's working office, there were six chairs. They yeah. still have the original six chairs, but they had to move them around to other offices just to create the walkways, yeah, the pathways that we could move through the offices. But um, the with those in office there. was tiny. Now oh, yeah. there was that credenza holding all the awards mm-hmm. that had to be reproduced um, from the original drawings. And that wasn't in the secretary's office. Yes. That was in another room, um, an outer office where we were able to store some of our belongings. Yes. But, uh, and so there was a couch there. So maybe that would have opened it up a little. Uh, probably a little bit. Yeah. But anyway, so, anyway, so, that, so yeah, yeah, but yeah, we have to watch Saving Mr. Banks again yeah. to look at this. And I'm sure it was made larger, too, just for filming. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, it would have filming. Been. Maybe I'll watch it on the airplane ride home tomorrow. Yeah. 
So anyway, so then um, the next thing was um, the formal office. And this is where Disney would host um, large meetings with his staff and visitors. It features items from his miniatures collection. Um, Walt loved miniatures. They said he had thousands of miniatures and he would make a lot of miniatures. Some are on display at the Walt Disney Family Museum, especially his handmade ones. Um, They just have a small collection of what he did have in his office there was still a remarkable amount yeah i would hate to dust those (laughs) and he had photos of his daughters as well as reproductions of the sketches of his daughters made by norman rockwell the originals are in the walt disney family museum there are bronzed baby shoes on his desk they don't quite know whose they are they believe they are his oldest daughters um diane disney's and in an opposite corner is the famous piano um, where composers would play their scores for upcoming films, you know, when pitching them to, um, to Walt. But as, as m- many of us know, on Friday evenings, Walt would have a drink, his Scotch Mist, with composers Richard and Robert Sherman, who wrote scores to films like The Jungle Book. And bed knobs and broomsticks and music for several Disneyland and Walt Disney World attractions and Walt would simply say play it and Richard Sherman knew what that meant and he'd then play Feed the Birds for Mary Poppins which was Walt Disney's favorite tune and that I think out of everything seeing that piano yeah. was the most moving oh absolutely moving thing in that whole office no it is it was just surreal. And mm-hmm. one of the things our guide said was that I didn't really put together as we were moving through it just because I was so captivated in the moment. But said, you know, after, it's you just stand in there and you smell it. And it just all – there's this connection that, that makes no sense why even something as strange as the smell would really place you in there and, and – give you such a strange feeling but Mm -hmm. it it was absolutely true thinking back onto it it is just it was so surreal being Mm -hmm. in there yeah and um and and what was also amazing again was how small that office was yeah and um you know you know and you know and again all the all the furniture in there was designed by kim weber and you know, it was, I don't know, it was just, when you think of what went on in that office, you know, it was just, uh, I don't know, it was just amazing. Absolutely. And um, and then there was sort of a little pass-through, and that was Walt's, uh, between his formal office and his working mm-hmm. office. And that was sort of his private area. Um, at one time, there had been a bed, because he sometimes would, would either take naps or most often, sometimes he would sleep at the studio. Yep. Um, also, that's where he, due to a, a polo injury early on in, in, in his Hollywood days, Walt was in extreme pain from it. Um, it was not handled correctly when he was a young man, mm-hmm. and he was suffering the results of that in, in his later years. So... Um, the studio nurse, Hazel George, would uh, give him uh, massages um, in the evening. Walt did not believe in having a driver, as many studio executives did in those days. Walt drove himself everywhere he went in a very simple car. Yeah. And so he needed the massages, though, so that he would be out of pain enough to be able to drive himself home. 
And so that's where he would get it. There was also a small bathroom mm-hmm. um, in there as well. So um, anyway, and then we would pass through and we went into Walt's working office. And this was where Walt would often read over scripts. Yes. And it was a very low desk. That's where the six chairs um, would have been. Um, there was on the wall a master plan for Disneyland that highlights attractions that had been recently completed or that were in progress as of 1966. Mm-hmm. Um, you saw It's a Small World and New Tomorrowland were um, marked out there and um so so what did you think of this office this is very different from the formal office yeah i i actually i i kind of preferred this one um you know i because of saving mr banks his other office that that just felt natural but this one was just so unique and seeing the plans on the board and the uh the plans for future epcot yes uh, the florida Mm -hmm. project uh just all of that together just really struck and as well as the fact that there was a kitchen in there and Mm -hmm. this fantastic picture of walt disney uh, i believe he was cooking spaghetti it was just and they had spam in there. Yeah. His favorite things: chili, V eight juice, and and the interesting thing is they and the the kitchen was exposed, but that was like the one luxury where the kitchen would be covered, and then with a with a, a wooden wall, and then with the push of a button, it yeah. would go aside, and then the kitchen would be revealed. Yeah, and I, I mean, my favorite thing in the entire place uh, in the sorry in that office was in that kitchen. There was these. Uh, there's these wet glasses that mm-hmm. I'm sure were just reproductions. I, if they were the real ones, I regret not s- just picking them up and walking away. Yeah, and them. then we'd be beautiful. recording this yeah. probably in L.A. County's um, it, jail. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, also what we should say is in that pass-through that was Walt's private area, it's now serving as a um, – it's now an exhibit space, and they're yes. going to have rotating exhibits in there. So the first exhibit is actually dedicated to Kim Weber, who's the architect who designed the Burbank lot and the studio's furniture. So they do have examples of some of his furniture on display there and, and how it was used um, in the studio. So it was nice, and including like the wall clock and oh, yeah. things like that. No, of his, one of his um, Walt Disney's desk clocks. Yes, and they had a whole uh, animator's desk set up uh, showing some uh, some of the things from uh, Reluctant Dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Baby Weems maquette and uh, uh, the knight from the actual Reluctant Dragon uh-huh. short as well as the the statue that's made of Robert Benchley right. in, in mm-hmm. the Reluctant Dragon. Yeah. So it was, it was neat seeing all those it little was. hidden details yeah. there. Yeah, and like I was saying, the, the, none of the offices are ostentatious. Nope. Uh, again, they, they reflect Walt's humble personality. You know, it does have its mid-century extravagances, you know, but mm-hmm. um, still, I mean, it's just remarkable. You never know these offices of a man head of a, a multimedia empire. Yeah, it was, I, I've said it, I think, probably two or three times now. It was just surreal. Yeah. So surreal. Now, another detail of Walt Disney, which was not left out, are the several ashtrays throughout the suite. Um, they once held um, matchbooks, 
featuring Mickey Mouse. And as our listeners of Connecting to Walt in my 60 Years of Disneyland series on the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition know, Walt Disney was a longtime cigarette smoker, as were many of the studio employees at the time. The ashtrays are not only an authentic detail, like um, the tarnished brass um, brads in a receptacle on the desk next to the sight savers eyeglass tissues and Dow Corning's first consumer product. Um, they're also a subtle reminder of the health effects of smoking and Walt Disney having passed away due to lung cancer when he was only 65 years old. So today, the Walt Disney Studio at 500 South Buena Vista Drive at Burbank, California, serves as the corporate office for the Walt Disney Company. We'll never know if Walt Disney ever imagined the wide range of projects that have been done and are now underway in his name. However, he would understand the motivation behind these projects. Walt Disney once said, in this volatile business of ours, we can ill afford to rest on our laurels, even to pause in retrospect respect. Times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future. So Craig, after our tour of the Walt Disney Studios, I think you'll agree the past, present, and future are all evident here in the house that Walt built. Oh, completely. No, it's... It really was the best studio tour that I've been on yet. Uh, granted, the the addition of Walt's restored offices to the tour really takes it up another notch. But I don't know, something about this tour just, it, it completely changed my previous perceptions on the, the studios. It just added a whole extra layer of appreciation for everything there. Do you think this tour is worth becoming a D23 gold member? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I it, it goes back again to if you're not from California area, you know, would I fly out specifically to do this tour? Uh, not specifically for the tour, but if you could pack in like a Disneyland vacation and then, uh, throw something on like a studio tour. Absolutely. Uh, hundred percent. I mean, especially if something like this would happen during a year where there's a, another event like destination D or the D 23 expo. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the, I just thought this was remarkable. This tour, I agree, is also the best tour I've been on. Yeah, no, it's uh, from everything. Like the fact that the tour starts at the the Hyperion building, one of four buildings mm -hmm. from the old Hyperion Studios that is still left. And all the time that I've been there before, the, the whole whopping two times before, <laughs> uh, you could see the building and the outside and know it was there. But this one started inside uh so it was finally it was great to add that off uh and check that off my list mm -hmm. of things to do on there and uh yeah. right yeah they start out with a nice little film mm -hmm. on sort of the history of walt in the studio yeah. in there well, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including the cast members of the D23 official Disney fan club and the Walt Disney Studio for sharing their extensive knowledge and enthusiasm for the rich legacy and genius of Walt and Roy Disney that was of great assistance with the content of this episode. Um, the article, The Disney Architecture Legacy of Michael Eisner by um, Chappelle Ellison for Cartoon Brew and the Disney Studio Story by Richard Hollis and Brian Sibley. 
To learn more about Walt and Roy's Hyperion Studio, its legacy on the Walt Disney Studio, and how the move to Burbank affected the creativity of the animation staff, we'll have a link to my article, The Walt Disney Hyperion Studios, 1929-1939, to The Foundation of an Empire. And that article contains a link to my interview with Disney historian and author David Lesjack on the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland Edition. Next week, Craig and I return to our respective kingdoms, from where we'll bring you lucky episode 13 of Connecting with Walt, titled Building a World Out of a Wilderness. Roy Disney's final project is to supervise the completion of Walt's dreams, Disney World and Cal Arts, and we'll examine how Roy made Walt's dreams come true. Craig, until our next episode, where can our listeners hear your golden vocal tones uh, without all the screaming in the background? <laughs> yeah, of course, you can find me on the Disney World edition, uh, the Universal edition, as well as whatever else I'm doing out there. I can't keep track of it anymore. <laughs> what about you? Well, and you can find me pretty much every Sunday night on the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all and all Southern California theme parks, the Walt Disney Family Museum, and every even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com. And Craig, we even have uh, that that fancy youtube channel don't we we do and what can we find on that <laughs> uh everything <laughs> yeah youtube.com slash wdw info as well as youtube.com slash disunplugged uh definitely keep an eye on those for any interesting videos uh applying to walt disney world disneyland uh in, Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> and you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook is Michael Bowling, Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz. And thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>